Steele, stop the steal. Today I will lay out just some of the evidence proving that we won this election and we won it by a landslide. This was not a close election. And after this, we're going to walk down and I'll be there with you. We're going to walk down. We're going to walk down to the Capitol. like hell and if you don't fight like hell you're not going to have a country anymore this is a story that's just beginning this date has transformed a lot of things how we think about security it's transformed our politics there's a cultural significance to this it's revealing an awful lot about the criminal justice system that people were blind to It's raising awareness about how sluggish our federal courts are. I've learned a lot about domestic abuse because as you read through January 6th documents, you see in granular detail the horrors of domestic violence incidents. All these cross currents from January 6th are going to impact America for generations to come. Welcome to Politicology. I'm Ron Steslow. As we're approaching the one-year mark since the attack on the U.S. Capitol, Congress and the Department of Justice are continuing to investigate the insurrection and the events leading up to it. I wanted to get a better understanding of how the investigations and the prosecutions are all playing out. So I asked someone who's following all of this very closely to come back on the show. Joining me today in studio is award-winning investigative reporter with NBC's Washington, D.C. affiliate, Scott McFarlane. Scott has interviewed presidents, senators, and governors. He has done and continues to do some of the most exhaustive reporting on this unfolding investigation and the prosecution of January 6th attackers. And in addition to NBC4, Scott regularly appears on NBC News, MSNBC, and on SiriusXM's POTUS channel. Scott, thanks so much for joining me today, and welcome back to Politicology. I love your show. It's great to be here. So the last time you were on in July, there were about 520 to 530 defendants in these cases. And you described that as the starting line. (laughs) And here we are some number of months later. Where are we now in the marathon of these investigations and prosecutions? What's the landscape? How have things changed since the last time we talked? We are simultaneously so far down the road, yet nowhere. Um, So add a couple hundred more defendants to the list. We're getting closer to 700 than 500. Um, But we also get this sense that there's so much more to unpeel, so much more to, to unearth here. Because we know from what the former acting Capitol Police chief told us, there were at least 800 people unlawfully in the Capitol January 6th. What's more, we've seen a number of people charged who were charged with crimes outside the Capitol who didn't get in. So we're not at the ceiling yet, but we're also just not getting very far in the high-level cases. Hmm. 
most of what we've seen disposed of, most of the cases that have gone from soup to nuts, that have gone through sentencing, are the lowest of low-level cases. No accusations of assault, no accusations of damage, people who are in the Capitol for a matter of minutes. Those are the cases that are closing. The ones that have more teeth to them, that have you know stiffer accusations where they're accused of being in sensitive areas, like in the Senate chamber, or people accused of being leaders or coordinators, those cases aren't moving yet. We've seen three or four high-level defendants reach sentencing. And in those cases, Ron, they're challenging and considering appealing the sentences, uh, unhappy with the, um, the the prison sentences they've been given. So those cases are still tied up in litigation. We're really nowhere on the big cases. Okay, wow. So the one that everyone will be familiar with immediately is the shaman. Um and I think there's a difference between high level and high profile, yeah. right? So yeah. can you, which, which category would you put him in? High profile. Okay. I mean, he's distinctive because he was. He wore the horns. He wore the Viking <laughs> horns. Yeah, right. He wore face paint. He was wearing bear skins. And he also did something distinctive. He went into a sensitive location. He went into the Senate chamber. In fact, he sat at Mike Pence's desk and left a note. So the accusations are distinctive, not just the clothing. Jacob Chansley pleaded guilty to a federal charge. Um, one of a, several dozen who've pleaded guilty so far. But Chansley was sentenced to 41 months in prison, and he fired his defense lawyer soon thereafter and hired a new defense lawyer, indicating he might appeal the judgment of the court, appeal the sentence. So even when we get to what seems like closure, we're really not at closure. The case will will continue on. I'm not sure what foothold he's going to find to appeal, but he's going to extend his case further. And he's one of the few high-profile defendants who've reached sentencing. So mm. this is going to bleed well into 2022, likely into 2023. What's more, Ron, we won't see a trial this calendar year. Oh, wow. Okay. We've spoken a lot about the January 6th committee on the podcast and how they're investigating the connection between Trump aides and the events on January 6th. Can you help us understand how that relates to what's going on with the prosecutions we're currently seeing. Is there any overlap? Um, and how are you seeing the differences between the more political arena of the January 6th committee and the Justice Department investigations? There's some intersection, but right now it's trivial or tangential. To, to be clear, there's two different silos here. The U.S. Justice Department is prosecuting the, at this point, six to 700 criminal defendants accused of specific crimes at the Capitol. The January 6th committee is looking at the much broader picture. What led up to that day? What contributed to this horrific and unique moment in American history, this transcendent event? They're looking at things that uh, they've issued subpoenas to look into the records of the former president, into the correspondence he may have had and others in the administration may have had with key players that day. There's some intersection, though. I mean, we'll see a number of defendants have said that they've been asked to speak to the January 6th committee and have mentioned that as part of their arguments for leniency. Look, oh, wow. I'm trying to help. I'm trying to cooperate. I'm trying to make up or atone for my transgression. Uh, we've also seen some number of judges or cases in which prosecutors or the judge have said they're concerned about the ongoing denialism of the election. They're concerned about what Donald Trump is saying. They're concerned about how the key figures, including Donald Trump, are handling this current moment and using that as an argument or a reason to hold some defendants in jail to keep them from being a danger or to continue 
stiff release conditions to restrict the movements of some defendants, considering what Donald Trump is still saying as an ongoing threat and danger to the community. So there's some intersections. Um, but right now, these are two separate worlds, and people sometimes conflate them, and we want to make sure it's clear they're different. Yeah, very different. But I imagine that as the prosecutions work their way up to the more serious crimes, the more serious charges, we probably will see more overlap because there will be more people implicated in the planning and the plotting, uh, which is what which is what the committee is focused on. Does that sound right? Absolutely. Okay. Spot on. I mean, first of all, we know that there have been subpoenas issued involving the Proud Boys right. um, by the January 6th committee. There's some number of Proud Boys being prosecuted by the U.S. Justice Department. What's more, I mean, we're also seeing other intersections. For example, some injured Capitol Police officers have filed civil suit against key figures from January 6th, hmm. both in the Trump administration and named defendants. So there's an intersection there. Um, I think when you get to the higher level cases, those accused of conspiracy, of plotting, of planning, of being ready for battle January 6th, you'll see more of a merge between what the January 6th committee is investigating and what the Justice Department's investigating. Okay, so we've also seen the January 6th committee subpoenas and requests for documents end up in court. Uh, can you walk us through how that process is playing out? Yeah, so the January 6th committee, among other things, has sought the records of Donald Trump, and Donald Trump is trying to stop that, citing, you know, invoking executive privilege. A D.C. federal judge said that she believed the January 6th committee lawfully should have access, that privilege doesn't apply. Then you see that get appealed to the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals for a three-judge argument. It's going to get tied up. But that really is an important dynamic, Ron. It's going to get tied up. Mm. How long will that process go? Hard to say, but to a degree, having a process that goes some length of time is an advantage for Donald Trump, who's trying to extend matters and trying to run the clock out on this January 6th committee, because this J January 6th committee's got an egg timer right. that's running. They've said they project to have their work done by spring or summer 2022. They kind of have to because the midterm elections could <laughs> right. change the calculus. They got to do it this Congress, yep. right, before that turns over. Okay, so by tied up, do we mean like procedurally or is there going to be some trial over the substance of this constitutional question? It's a legal tie up. I okay. mean, they're, they're going to the appeals courts trying to you know, litigate or argue whether executive privilege applies if you're not the president yeah. anymore. And that's a provocative argument that's actually quite interesting if you take the, the, these specific parties out of it. Yeah. Does a former president have a right to keep his or her conversations or deliberations private from a future president? And could that be weaponized right. by either side in years to come? Well, the courts have to grapple with that. Now, this is uncharted territory, and that was made clear when the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals heard arguments from the Trump team saying, we, we don't have a whole lot of precedent here. You explain to us um, right. what you think we should be doing. Yeah, not a lawyer. We've talked about this uh, a bit on the podcast, but it's my understanding that this uh, that executive privilege, privilege really is meant to protect uh, presidential staff. So, uh, so that they can give him unbiased, unvarnished advice while he's in office. That's really the purpose. So this is a fascinating question um, uh, that, that, we're, that we're now going to watch play out. I want to know a little bit more about the more serious charges, what you can tell us about the people who haven't, that were set, where, where prosecutions really haven't even begun. Um, are there any are there any tips? Are there any signals or clues as to where you think this is going for the more serious charges? I feel like the federal government, the U.S. Justice Department, seems to be marshalling its resources towards those charged with conspiracy, okay. those charged with having some discussion 
a plan before January 6th of what could happen January 6th. We all have seen these images of the the shaman and his Mm -hmm. face paint. He's not the most interesting defendant. There are far more illustrative cases to look at to get a sense of what might have happened before January 6th. First of all, we'll repeat what I told you in July. There still are three far-right groups you should be keeping your closest eye on. The accused Oath Keepers, the accused Proud Boys, and the accused Three Percenters, all aligned with far-right ideology, all have defendants accused of having some type of plan, some as early as November, to do something to disrupt January 6th and to bring weapons, makeshift or otherwise, to or near D.C. Um, Let me reiterate some of that. The Oath Keepers are accused of having what they call a QRF, a quick reaction force, staging guns outside the city limits of Washington, D.C., in Virginia, at a hotel in Boston, Virginia, just in case Donald Trump were to invoke the Insurrection Act. They wanted weapons at their disposal close by, according to prosecutors. That's a that's a heck of an accusation. It's yeah. a heck of a charge. It's included in the charging documents. So you got to watch the yeah. cases of the Oath Keepers closely. Yeah. The Proud Boys are accused of being particularly violent and destructive on site January 6th. And according to prosecutors, among other things, they came with earpieces to communicate in an emergency situation, an argument that they expected an emergency situation long before January 6th, before they made their trips. The three percenters were accused of planning as early as November, so right after the election, to be in D.C. January 6th, ready for something. And according to the accusations and the charging documents, at least some members of the three percenters brought by car makeshift weapons to Washington, D.C., knowing that bringing them to the airport might raise a red flag. Again, there's an accusation there of conspiracy, of plotting and planning. So the U.S. Justice Department seems focused on those who were ready for something, not caught up in a moment, not organically pushing into the Capitol, not knowing said thing was going to happen. They're concerned these groups knew, prepared for, and helped inspire the violence. What are the implications of a conspiracy charge? What does that carry? What could it mean? And is there any precedent? That we're looking at. So it's a felony. Uh, some of these defendants are charged just with misdemeanors, with unlawfully being on the grounds, with unlawful picketing and parading. The accused conspirators are charged with felonies, facing obviously stiffer penalties, stiffer potential federal sentences. Also gives the prosecutor some leverage to get them to plead. And that's been effective so far. We had several members of the accused Oath Keepers conspiracy who've already pleaded guilty and already agreed to cooperate with the Justice Department. So they're flipping those defendants for more information, potentially about other defendants, potentially about those who helped design this plan, if there was a plan, to riot January 6th, potentially who helped fund it. Mm. Somebody had to pay some Mm -hmm. bills, potentially. Um, So they're flipping these defendants, and we'll see what comes of that. But I'll note, of those who've pleaded guilty so far, including one who did so many months ago, none has been sentenced yet, which leads me to believe the cooperation is ongoing. When I look at how the prosecutions are progressing, I'm struck by how much we're still learning about what actually happened on January 6th. What are the things that have come out so far that have been most revealing to you as a journalist? What strikes me most is what people brought. They didn't just bring themselves. According to charging documents, there's a list of makeshift weapons, which is as long as your arm. I mean, it starts with the chemical spray and bear spray, um, which is such an evocative weapon. It's such a, a potent, colorful, and destructive weapon. How about the, the flagpoles that were sharpened into a tip? How about the bats, hockey sticks, the lacrosse sticks, the, um, you know, the, the gloves 
that you know the tourniquet, the defensive te- and 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 first aid uh, remedies some of these insurrectionists or accused insurrectionists brought with them. It conjures up images of a makeshift militia. That's what I think about when I hear your yeah. description of these these weapons. Sorry, I'm yeah. sorry to interrupt. No, you're, but that's that's yeah. that's in fact what is being alleged that they they were equipped like a makeshift militia, you know, with tactical gear, with vests, with goggles. Expecting there to be some need for eye protection. Then there are the things that that were brought and used that 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 sound almost medieval. You know, a pickaxe, um, a, a tomahawk. These were carried on the grounds of the U.S. Capitol on January sixth. And for those of us who work on Capitol Hill, you know, you can't even bring your car keys yeah, yeah, without getting yeah. stopped at the metal detector. You know, your belt has to come like a off. little laser pointer is, is confiscated. You'll yeah, be, you'll be confiscated and you'll be stopped. I mean, if you bring pocket change, yeah. you're, you got to go back through the metal detector. So it's so. Out of out of this world to think of people having these medieval weapons inside the Capitol itself. So what people brought strikes me, and I think when you have these 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 makeshift weapons on your person, that's what the prosecutors may characterize as an aggravating factor when time comes for sentencing. Did you carry something that was dangerous? I haven't seen a defendant face a judge for sentencing accused of bringing a tomahawk, a pickaxe, or flagpole sharpened into a spear yet. Um, let's see what happens when those defendants do face their moment yeah. to be sentenced. Yeah, I was going to ask you, what have you seen about how evidence is being collected and used to identify suspects? So evidence broadly is an enormous problem. Okay. In this case, it's the pinnacle of, of, of complications. Um, what we have here is the largest criminal investigation in American history. So that's your starting point. You have hundreds of thousands of tips. You have tens of thousands of hours of video. Now, if you and I sat down to watch tens of thousands of hours of video, we wouldn't be done till 2024. Literally. If we sat down today and started, I mean, that's what prosecutors have to work their way through. Not only did they have to ready it for themselves, they're required to ready it for defense lawyers in some digestible form that defense lawyers can look at, understand, comprehend, and work with. Have to ready it for the court. They haven't finished yet. I mean, we're, we're 10 months later, almost 11 months later, they haven't finished yet. That's a problem. That's why trials haven't started. That's why trial dates, at me, to me, seem a little bit loose and a little bit like guesswork and not you know, etched in stone. We may see trials begin in January, but I wouldn't bet the mortgage on it because evidence hmm. is a problem. There's so much of it. There's the phones. Yeah. Everybody, you yeah, see the pictures, they're on their phones. <laughs> I mean, a forensic review of a phone is a laborious task, right. a time-consuming task. One phone. Yeah. They have hundreds, if not thousands. They have 6,000 grand jury subpoenas. So it's almost like this, this economy of scale. There's just so much, it's hard to wrap their hands around it. They also have to funnel all of this, Ron, all this evidence and all these cases through one courthouse. The Washington, D.C. Federal Courthouse is home to all these cases. And the Washington, D.C. Federal Courthouse, in a busy year, will get three to 400 criminal cases. There are 600 plus January 6th cases alone for this courthouse to manage, for the prosecutors to manage, for the federal defenders to manage, for the clerks to manage. These, these cases are going to go well into 2022, if not the next year. Okay. So it's really not a problem of lack of evidence. It's just an overwhelming- It's the opposite. It's the opposite. Okay. Too much. And there's no indication that there are any political considerations whatsoever in in the court proceedings, right? I mean, they're not they're not thinking about the midterms. They're not thinking about any you know the, which way the political winds are blowing. I mean, I know our listeners will be familiar with the fact that you know eighty percent of Republicans want to see Donald Trump run again, and 
and it, he's sort of potentially implicated person number one here. And, um, and it seems that lots of people are sort of tuning out and want to move on from this, but there's none of that is, uh, bearing down on prosecutors. The judicial system is working. Can you sort of, uh, reassure our listeners who, who, write in a lot and are very concerned about this because the January 6th committee seems to be the most visible sort of representation of American grievance about what happened on that day. And yet there's a very serious criminal prosecution unfolding. And a lot of people are just worried that we're going to move on past this moment and there will be no accountability and public opinion seems to be moving that direction. There's no political pressure on the courts, nor have they expressed any opinion on the matter. I mean, their, their timing is going to be their timing. What's more, I think it's guesswork to assume who's politically advantaged by having January 6th trials in midterm election season. It, it, it's guesswork to know who would be benefiting from that anyhow, so that's not a consideration. There's obviously the, the significant political consideration on the timing of the January 6th committee. But the court system is going to move at its own pace, and it's bogged down in the best of times. The federal courts move particularly mm -hmm. slowly in the best of times. And these aren't the best of times. There's a backlog that already had formed before January 6th due to COVID. Mm. The courts had reduced their operations and the caseload kept growing and growing and a little bit of a chokehold on the court system. Now you throw on top of that all of these hundreds of January 6th complicated cases where defendants are even appealing their sentences <laughs> after the close of cases and things are going to slow down. Um, so who's Who's frustrated by it slowing down? Well, the public obviously is frustrated. They want to see justice. They want to see some level of vindication yeah. um, from the, the trauma we all experienced that day. And I, and I respect and understand that. The defendants want to move too. I mean, the defendants, the, those who are in pretrial detention, those who've been jailed mm -hmm. ever since January 6th because their cases are so severe, they'd like to get to court soon because they're in jail already. That is leverage for the prosecutors. That is problematic for the defendants. They like to move too. So they're frustrated by the slowdowns as well. Um, there's also all the staff of the U.S. Justice Department, which is trying to manage and navigate all this. Slowdowns aren't helping them. So nobody's being well served by these delays, but these delays are going to persist for quite a while. Okay. All right. Let's talk about sentencing. We've seen a couple of high profile defendants uh, who pled guilty, who were sentenced to over three years in prison. Uh, Scott Fairlam, who assaulted a Capitol Police officer, and as you mentioned before, the QAnon shaman, uh, Jacob Chansley. From what you're seeing now uh, that we have some of the more high-profile defendants, and that is not uh, the same as high-level uh, in terms of the crime that they're facing, um, they're being sentenced. How are we seeing sentencing play out on the crimes that have been committed? Because uh, it, 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 it has struck me as quite lenient, not knowing anything about the substance of the crimes for which they've been charged and convicted or pled guilty to. Um, and, and it's really helpful for me to know as you, as you delineated earlier on that there's a, there's a big difference between the, between basically the level of crime that has been, that has been, that has been played out so far. So, uh, you talked about how the higher level cases haven't gotten to sentencing yet. How should we expect the sentencing to reflect that when we get there? That's that's the question that makes the next month so interesting. Okay. So we have three different tiers of January 6th cases. That low level tier I described earlier. Nobody's accused of any assault or damage. They didn't, they didn't plan this. They were in there for a few minutes, got back out. We call them the, the misdemeanor defendants. They pleaded guilty by the dozen 
Uh, a handful of them have been sentenced. The range is from no jail at all, you know, probation, maybe some home detention, to prison sentences that are measured in days or weeks, not months or years. So 30 days in jail, 45 days in jail. That's the range for the low-level defendants. The, the ones who get the higher end of that, maybe they have a criminal history. Maybe they said you know something particularly stupid or, or, or during the process of being prosecuted. The mid-level defendants, that's where we are now. You referenced two of them, the so-called QAnon shaman. He's a mid-level defendant because he was in the Senate chamber. He did something a little more. Um, Scott Fairlam, a former MMA fighter from New Jersey who was accused of assault against police. That's an aggravating factor, obviously. And there's video of it that was used as evidence by the Justice Department. He pleaded guilty to assault. He got 41 months in jail. That's our first taste of what a mid-level sentence is like. The QAnon shaman got 41 months mm -hmm. in jail. That's where the mid-level cases are. There's another defendant uh, accused of being in the Senate chamber, a man by the name of Paul Hodgkins, one of the first to plead guilty. He got a great deal, his defense lawyer, his original defense lawyer says. He got eight months in prison. Those three men, those are our first real sample size of what the mid-level cases are like. All three have considered or in fact did appeal their sentences didn't like what they got. Now, some people can look at that and say, boy, that seems light. That seems low end. The 41 months, those were inside the guidelines that this federal government recommends for those particular federal charges if you plead guilty. The eight months was close to the, to the guidelines recommended by the federal government for that particular crime. So they're not going below. Right or right. significantly below what's supposed to happen according to the federal guidelines. They're actually on the low end of it, um, but those defendants are challenging it. So that's our beta test. That's how the mid-tier cases are going. Let's see how the rest go after that. The high-level cases, those conspirators, those accused plotters and planners, those who had particular acute levels of violence, those who are unrepentant, those who don't plead guilty, those who may have vast criminal histories, that's the next tier. We're not there yet, but you see the second tier is already a hot mess. We already got people, you know, getting inside the guidelines and complaining about the wrist slaps that they did get. Yeah. Okay. Complaining <laughs> about a sentence that was inside the guidelines you knew of when you pleaded guilty. I mean, it's off to a bad start. Okay, there's been a lot of attention on the conditions in the DC jail, especially as it relates to the January 6th defendants, but I saw that you tweeted yesterday that a defendant in a Maryland drug case asked for leniency because of pretrial detention in DC. Can you talk a bit about the conditions uh, that the defendants are calling attention to and how they've tried to request leniency? So the DC jail, in your mind's eye picture that the oldest, you know, office building in town or the oldest middle school you've ever stepped foot in. It's a, it's a, it's a decades old building, very bland looking on the outside. On the inside, there's two sections. And this is important. There's the newer section, the more desirable section of the jail for inmates called the central treatment facility. Then there's the older section, the original section called the central detention facility. Well, this is important because a couple weeks ago, the United States Marshals did an inspection of the old central detention facility and found it was so substandard, they had to evacuate hundreds of their federal inmates from there, move them to a different facility. Problems with standing sewage, problems with water service. Was it actually being provided? Problems with retaliation against inmates, allegedly by staff. The U.S. Marshals had a list of grievances from their inspection and pulled inmates out of the central detention facility. That is not where the January 6th inmates are. They're in the more desirable section. They're in the central treatment facility. 
The U.S. Marshals deemed that to be sufficient. The conditions in there did not require any removals. Imperfect, but not problematic. So the inmates from the January 6th uh, case are not, uh, they know what's going on in the old section. They know there's been an evacuation. They're watching and reading the news. So they're citing that inspection and the problems as arguments that they too should be released or removed from the central treatment facility. Now, my reporting has revealed over the last several years concerns about the central treatment facility as well. Um, You have inmates who've expressed concern they don't have access to computers or tablets, which is important because they got to review their cases. Mm. They have to look at the evidence. They need electronic access to go through and prepare their defenses. So that's not trivial. There's a big concern, Ron, about the fact that the January 6th inmates in that part of the jail are all kept together. They're in a separate wing by themselves. They call they call it the Patriot Wing. It's known more broadly as the January 6th Wing. They're segregated, perhaps for their own safety, perhaps for the other inmates' safety, perhaps for, for better peace and harmony. But a growing number of the January 6th defendants in that wing have said it's becoming cult-like. And they're concerned about being radicalized because it's a, it's a monolithic group oh all together. Talking about January 6th, talking about the insurrection, talking about Trump. And that's problematic. And some of them have cited that as a reason they need to be released. As of this taping, Ron, there are 41 of the 600 plus January 6th defendants who are in pretrial detention in that jail. Wow. Okay. I didn't know that. That's alarming. I saw that you tweeted about a capital defendant, Brian Mock, um, who you said shouldn't fly under the radar. Um, Can you talk about Mock and what makes that case interesting? So Brian Mox, one of the, not the only one, but one of the defendants whose backstory is particularly noteworthy. Brian Rock did not come to the Capitol, allegedly, on January 6th with a clean history. According to prosecutors, as they argued about whether Mock should be detained before trial, Mock has a history that includes putting a gun to the heads of children and then either verbally or physically confronting somebody who was a good Samaritan and tried to intervene. He comes to the January 6th case with that baggage. Um, He's argued that that incident was mischaracterized, but the prosecutors said in so many words that he put a gun to the heads of kids as part of their case filings against Brian Mock. Brian Mock is emblematic of something, Ron. He's emblematic that we have these 600 plus defendants, each of whom has a robust and revealing backstory. There's no shortage of defendants who have accusations in their past of domestic assault, violence against women, verbal or physical. There's no shortage of January 6th defendants who come to this party, to this criminal case, claiming to be sovereign citizens. That group of Americans who'd say they're not Americans, that they're, they are sovereign people, that they don't have to follow or fall under the authority of the U.S. courts or the U.S. government. That's been complicating some cases because those defendants tend to have outbursts and yell at the judges, and that doesn't go well. In fact, it's a bit of an aside, but there's one defendant facing a, a low-level case, a woman named Pauline Bauer. She owns a restaurant near Erie, Pennsylvania. She's charged with being unlawfully on the grounds January 6th. If she saw her case through, she likely would face minimal, if any, jail time. And she is beginning her third month in pretrial detention because she has used sovereign language in court, had outbursts, hasn't followed the judge's orders, and has tried to defend herself. So the sovereign citizenry is complicating matters so much that this woman who likely wouldn't face any, if much, jail time at all is now in jail for a third month. But they really believe this. 
that, 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 they're, yeah. that they're they're one hundred percent sovereign, and they tend to represent themselves wow. in court as part of this mindset. And let me tell you, those are the cases we circle yeah. in magic marker on yeah. our calendars and listen to <laughs> because it goes off the rails fast. Wow! And it, it, again, it's emblematic of what yeah. Brian Mock illustrates and what Pauline yeah. Bauer illustrates. Everybody who's part of this is coming with some rich backstory that 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 we need to understand because yeah. we have to understand what led to this distinctive American moment. Yeah. Yeah. I'd love to watch this a little bit more closely. I didn't know about her. Um, it does, it does, it does seem, what well, do you find that that's a common thread with many of the defendants that the, 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 the idea that the individual is perfectly sovereign and not subject to the laws of the United States? That's a few of them. Um, that, that there's some subset of Americans who fall under that umbrella. I mean, there's some number of January 6th defendants. I just, I, I'm guessing here, but my sense of it is there's a larger percentage of January 6th defendants who have this mindset than, than Americans who have this mindset. Who are the other defendants who've been overshadowed by someone like the QAnon shaman? We've talked about a few of them. Is there anyone else who we really should be paying more attention to? There's a few. Um, let's start with a group. Okay. Let's start with the group of Dan January 6th defendants who were active duty law enforcement at the time of January 6th. I mean, there's- oh my a group, a subset of defendants who were law enforcement working as police on that day. There's a pair who are small town police officers in Virginia, in, in Southwest or Southeast Virginia. They've since lost their jobs after their arrest, but they were active duty police when they were at the Capitol on January 6th amid a mob that was confronting police. And one of those two officers um, has been put in pretrial jail as well, not because of the nature of the charges he faced, but because, according to the prosecutors, while on release conditions awaiting his trial, he purchased 34 guns. Oh, my goodness. Which is... Uh, a bit of a red flag. A bit of a red flag and a, a violation yeah. of the court order of don't <laughs> possess a gun. So he's in jail. There is a Southern California DEA agent who, according to prosecutors and the images they put in their court documents, Ron, brandished his gun and his badge while on site January 6th. A, a Chicago police officer who's now on leave of absence. It, it goes on and on. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't count the active duty U.S. Marine Corps officer and the countless, seemingly countless number of defendants who are military veterans. Um, that's something we have to talk about because yeah. we have to grapple with how is it that people who served this country, those who are sworn to protect and serve at that moment, are part of a riot, yeah. allegedly, um, that is confronting assaulting and injuring police by the dozen. Yeah. And the Pentagon has certainly brought attention to this and they're trying to root out extremism within their own ranks and they've come under fire for just, just for doing that. You're right. I think that warrants a completely separate conversation. Um, are you seeing any increased scrutiny around uh, the, the active duty police officers and the elected officials? Um, uh, and how, how are prosecutors how are prosecutors approaching those cases differently from- They are. The they are approaching them differently. That's a great question because I've seen as we get to the later stages of the cases against those with a military veteran service, a military service, it's almost a double-edged sword. Um, prosecutors say they deserve credit for serving their country, but they deserve extra scrutiny because they should have known better. They mm. should have known better than to be part of this. So they get points- mm. Added, and then they get points deducted mm. for having military service, but it's it's relevant, and yeah. the prosecutors believe it to be relevant. I'll note that in certain parts of America, these cases gather local attention when there's a local defendant, and when it's police, they get more attention. You know, the Chicago news media 
has been more engaged in covering this case involving a former Chicago police officer. Mm -hmm. He's not the only defendant from Illinois, but he's police. So his case gets extra attention in the hometown. Same is true of the DEA agent. Same is true of the two cops from Virginia. Um, So it it gives them a little more notoriety, not in a way they'd want. It makes their Google future a very negative one, Um, but they're getting more scrutiny. Uh, But we do see clusters. We see clusters geographically. I mean, it's hard to escape the growing number of defendants from upstate New York. Now, logistically, not hard to make that trip from upstate New York to Washington, D.C. It's a five or six hour drive down one highway, down Mm -hmm. Interstate 81. Um, But I've been talking with my journalist friends in upstate New York. What is in the political atmosphere? What's in the water? What is, there's, it's a disproportionate to the population. What's more, the folks from upstate New York tend to be those higher level defendants. Hmm. Those who did a little bit more, who acted more demonstratively on January 6th. That's something they should yeah. be grappling with. What's going on in our politics that such a mobilization happened from our part of the country? Yeah, that's a great question. Okay, let's uh, talk a little bit about the state level. So there, the three groups uh, that are accused of conspiracy, the Oath Keepers, the Three Percenters, and the Proud Boys, which you've mentioned, all have uh, national presences. Their activity isn't contained to the D.C. area, but based on what you've seen, um, you know, what is the potential for something like this to happen again on the state level at state houses? That would be the vulnerability at this moment in time. Maybe the, the U.S. Capitol Police, the Secret Service learned a lot of lessons January 6th. And you saw on September 18th when there was a, you know, a stop the steal rally or a J6 rally, how by orders of magnitude, the police outnumbered those who gathered. I mean, they, they were, they'd were they say we're taking no chances, but the, the mobilization was remarkable. So nothing was going to happen that day. Everybody was ready. I think you, we're sitting in a city that is more prepared now than it was January 6th for, for future incidents. Yeah, Is the same true of the state police in each of our you know, 50 states? Is the same true around our state capitals? Michigan obviously had an experience in the last couple of years with threats like this. Are they ready? Um, This is going to be an issue moving forward, and it's not going to be on a firm date on the calendar. Here, I think people are going to know to be on their toes on January 6th, 2025. For sure. (laughs) And and, and it's a date certain, too. I mean, you know the date said thing could happen. Our state capitals, is the date so certain? Is the vulnerability more broad, uh, more linear? That's a question. Yeah, yeah. You are, as I mentioned earlier on, keeping a closer eye on this than anyone else I know, anyone else on Twitter, uh, and and all of the attention is very well-deserved. Um, and I'm wondering if there's anything we we aren't paying attention to that we should be, some stuff that you might be watching closely, but that doesn't get a lot of coverage. And I'd also just be curious to know, you know, how has your life changed as, as a result of this coverage? Um, yeah. And if, if you're comfortable sharing. Of course. Yeah. First of all, I think, What I've developed an appreciation for, and I I hope others do, is that this is a story that's just beginning. This date has transformed a lot of things, how we think about security. It's transformed our politics. It's, I mean, ask Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger how their politics have changed, how their political lives have changed since January 6th, how their party has changed since January 6th. This is a transformative moment in our politics that may not be as transformative as Donald Trump himself, but it's big and it's causing a shift. There's a cultural significance to this, how people champion the January 6th defendants in some communities in America. Is it, you know, is it splitting more, more demonstratively 
the cultural schisms that exist in some American communities. It's revealing an awful lot about the criminal justice system that people were blind to. People weren't paying attention to things like the conditions inside the Washington, D.C. jail, which I've heard complaints about for generations. People are finally paying attention to it, and some people have some level of frustration. It took a group of insurrection defendants to raise awareness about a jail that has been substandard in so many people's minds for so many people of color for so many years. Um, It's raising awareness about how sluggish and how litigious our federal courts are. I mean, you got people here appealing their sentences. You have people waiting years to have their cases adjudicated. That's, That's the reality in America. People are becoming aware of it. This moment is raising awareness and maybe it affects change down the road. There's that. There's all these backstories where we're learning things about parts of America I didn't know about. I was tangentially aware of the sovereign citizen movement. I've learned a lot about it. It's something we all need to be aware of because it can raise threats in our hometowns. This doesn't exist in the capital. This exists in American communities. I've learned a lot about domestic abuse because as you read through January 6th documents, you see in granular detail the horrors of domestic violence incidents. Um, it's They have to spell it out. And when you see it spelled out, it's... It's something Americans need to see. It's something Americans need to talk about. They need to see these details because it it shows you what's happening behind closed doors. All these cross currents from January 6th are going to impact America for generations to come. And that's why I'm trying to be diligent about tracking every case, even the small ones, because big things could be revealed there. I've learned a lot about things like the sovereign citizen movement looking through the lowest of low-level January 6th cases. If I ignored those, saying, let me just watch the big fish, I'd miss really important stuff about my country, my state, and my hometown. So I think we all need to be paying attention to it because we're going to learn a lot about ourselves, our neighbors, and our communities. Now, there is some group of Americans who don't want to hear about bad things that their political comrades did. They don't want to hear about the, the horrors of January 6th because maybe they're politically aligned with some of those defendants. And they will send nasty grams, man. They will send some nasty notes unsolicited to me and to others who cover this. And it's kind of the cost of doing business. Um, I'll admit that I've had one January 6th defendant himself send me some notes that I had to alert security about. Um, it, that's the nature of reporting on this. But I, I'm not naive. I would assume those who covered the presidential election get the same thing. Those who covered Trump, got the same thing. So I'm not alone. It just add us to the list of people who get real yeah. rough stuff electronically. I mean, you're right on the bullseye though. <laughs> yeah. It's, um, it's, it's, it's something some people don't want to talk about yeah. and they don't want others to talk about it. So they'll go after the messengers. And then there are some people who like Tucker Carlson, they are actively trying to mythologize this event and, I'm sure you've seen that doc. The 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 I don't know if you've watched it, but the 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 trailer, the 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 attempt yep. to sort of not just whitewash. It isn't a whitewash. It's like a it's a lionization of the event and the people who participated in it. And I wonder, as a journalist, how do you see that in the in the in the information landscape that you're essentially competing in, right? To get the truth out, you're now competing with. So almost like in a political campaign, a, a completely divergent narrative that takes what is essentially one of the worst attacks in American history on our democracy and turns it upside down 
and 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 calls it like a, a battle cry for democracy. And I just I can't imagine doing what you do day in and day out and and seeing something like that, which is which is sort of all of the truth turned upside down. Well, I, I know it specifically ticks off the Capitol Police officers, mm-hmm. especially those who were injured and specifically traumatized on January 6th. They see stuff like that. They're, they're unbridled in their outrage. Um, and I see that. I talk to them. I recognize how, how painful that can be for them. But all of this needs to be understood and monitored. We can't just ignore it because it seems a little wacky because there's going to be hundreds of thousands of Americans who consume it and believe it. And Donald Trump is pass blocking for this by tweeting or posting things like, you know, November 3rd was the real insurrection. January 6th was a protest, which gives license to do things like you just described. But I I, always say, I got some, some friends who are like, I can't even watch that stuff. Why do you watch that stuff, Scott? Because some, because Americans are watching that stuff. I need to see what they're seeing. Yeah. I need to see what they're yeah. they're ingesting from yeah. media because it's it's going to be relevant. <sighs> Anything else you'd like to leave our listeners with today? I, I think this is a story that's just beginning. Um, that moment that we all saw at home on our TVs that may have really hit us in the stomach, um, that, that moment's over. But this is an onion. We're peeling layer after layer off, and there's a lot more to go. And I, I, I may have mentioned this to you before, Ron, but I still can't get out of my mind. When I saw that first accused insurrectionist in the Senate chamber, that first image of somebody sitting behind the Senate president's desk, you know, wearing the, 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 the garb, that was so, it hit me so hard. I made some facial expression that scared my eight-year-old son. And he ran out of the room crying because he's never seen daddy so make that face. And that inspires me to stick with this. And I think it inspires a lot of Americans who want to see, watch this till the last case closes because that moment traumatized them. And they want accountability for everyone who played a role that day, who had us you know, crying, scared, or you know, making a face that scares our eight-year-old son. We want accountability for that. So we're not going to stop till the last case closes. And, and sadly, we are a long way off from that. Scott McFarland. Thank you for the heroic work that you're doing. Um, And I look forward to our next conversation. Absolutely. Before I let you go, where can everyone find you on the internet and follow your work? Um, On Twitter, it's at McFarland News. And the Facebook page is uh, is up there as well. Um, We try to update um, minute by minute on social media. I think that's the best mechanism for this. And it's also the best story for minute by minute updates because this is the one story I've covered in my life where they file paperwork on Thanksgiving, on Father's Day, on Sundays during football, and most unfortunate for everyone involved, they filed stuff on Mother's Day. Oh, wow. And we had to figure out what to do about that because Mrs. McFarland (laughs) is not a fan of Mr. McFarland being on his computer on Mother's Day. So that's the one day we took off. Thank you to everyone at home and on the go for listening. Podcasts tend to grow based on word of mouth. So if you want to help more people discover politicology, you can share this episode or one of your favorites with your friend group, your family, or your colleagues. If you have questions about anything we've talked about, you can reach us, as always, at podcast at politicology.com. And even when we can't respond, we do read everything you send us, whether it's an episode idea, a guest recommendation, or a simple note about how the show has impacted you. And we'd love to hear from you. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode.